This is Two on One, the internet's top sensation when it comes to theology, pop culture, and the intersections in between. I am your co-host, the Reverend Arthur Stewart. I am your other co-host, the Reverend Stephanie Kendall. Why, Stephanie, you look dashing today in your clerical collar. Thank you. I decided to, uh, you know, every once in a while, I have to dress up for our um, our topic. Uh, yeah. As we re- may remember, uh, my um, bird movie costume from Moira. And still my favorite. It, I mean, it's still in my closet. Feathers still sometimes get everywhere. Um, but this one was a real easy one. Just like go into closet, pull out normal shirts. So I don't um, have any uh, black collared shirts that aren't clergy collar shirts. So I will wear them and people will be like, ooh, Nehru collar. I'm like, nope. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking yeah. of clothing and people being like, ooh, what are you wearing? I'm doing a ton of weddings next year. I have like eight on the books. And one of the things I talk about, especially with people who aren't, churched in my congregational setting is I say, do you want me to wear a robe or a stole or a robe and stole? And usually they say you should wear a stole and I've got really bad news. I don't have a wedding stole. Um, No, but you know, who does have a lot of beautiful white stoles that would be totally appropriate for weddings. Jeff One Row Designs. Jeff One Row Designs, our lead sponsor here on Two on One. Uh, I was looking today at the circles stole, which is beautiful. It's white. And there's these overlapping gold circles with various patterns and such. And I really like it. And I realized if I order it right now and get the $50 upcharge to get the rings all the way from the bottom, all the way up to the hem and across the nape, mm-hmm. it's $300. But do you know what that means? What? I use the coupon two on one at checkout. I saved $45 on that stole. It pays for the upcharge. It does. But like, that's incredible. It is incredible. I was also like looking the other day. um, I mean, it was last night. Again, time's a little bit elusive. Time is weird. Um, Time is weird. Um, And it looked like Jeff had a sale, like maybe an after Thanksgiving day sale. I'm not entirely sure. But he had a sale and he was like, we've sold out of things. And he's, you know, all these extra things. So he was like, I'm so sorry. I, you know, we've sold out. Here is a 10% off coupon for any of you, those that want to order, um, you know, order things. And I literally was like in my bed, I almost texted you like the middle of the night because I was so excited. I was like, if Jeff is giving the people he loves most 10% off, they all should be listening to two on one because we have a better promo than he is giving his people. 15% 15% off is way more than 10% off. It's it is. 10% more. It is. Um, and, but I was just so impressed. I was like, Jeff has stayed true to his word that we here at 2 on one have the best coupon at any given time throughout the year for stools. And you still have time to get them. Yes, that's right. If you put in the code 2 on one all letters, all one word at checkout, just make sure you look for the, the coupon place at checkout. It's there. You'll receive 15% off your entire stole order. We should also note, Jeff Wonder Designs does stoles really well. These stoles still steal the show, but for 16 years, they've been celebrating making ordinary time extraordinary by doing all sorts of liturgical textiles, uh, vestments, paraments, banners, frontals, chasubles, copes, and the occasional miter and face mask. So go to Jeff Wonder, J-E-F-F-W-U-N-R-O-W.com after the show. And look at the catalog, place an order, use our code two on one because he loves us best. He does. He loves us best and he loves you listeners best. So that is very exciting. I was using the Royal Deuce for, for us. So I like it. Um, should we bring in today's guest? Should we, should we 
bring up a little bit. Christine Pierce is joining us today to talk about Midnight Mass. I did not know it was a scary show when I said yes to doing it. Uh, let's bring her in before I go to therapy. I love it. I love it too. Christine Pierce, welcome to Two on One. Hi. Hi. We're so happy that you are here. You are. I. I was like, do you have the top badge button on our, our on <laughs> when you comment? Because I feel like you can You are such a faithful, not only you know, listener and viewer and uh, faith leader, but like you legit uh, engage two on one stuff all the time, and we're really appreciative of that. It needs to show up in my feed. That's the way to guarantee it for me as the nerd. <laughs> well, Christine, who are you? Uh, what do you do? Like, yeah. Tell our people about you. Tell our people. I, I was called to work with students and that's what I do. I am not called to be ordained because I can't commit to any denomination because no denomination is correct. And uh, I just offended a whole bunch of people, I'm sure. But everyone has it wrong and everyone has some parts right. And I just could never commit to any grouping. Um, and I work in Fort Worth and I get to work with some wonderful teenagers and their parents. And I'm actually like, I just got to see one of my college students yesterday <laughs> and I'm still having a little bit of like the jitters from it. Cause I was so excited and surprised. That's fantastic. And they're lucky to have somebody like you who's discerning enough to say, even the disciples aren't correct. <clears throat> <laughs> you know, I, I like it. I, I have said on this program before, like, I think it, we don't value lay leadership enough that we are all called to ministry and we are all ministers of something and whether or not your call includes uh, ordination or not. Uh, I think that, you know, we need to talk about that more about who, who and what leadership actually looks like. Um, and I think you've chosen quite the uh, topic there, friend, to explore this um, this entire venue of, of conversation or of space. Yeah. Once again, I said before you came in, I don't do I don't do scary stuff, um, but I did. But if I knew it was scary when you suggested it, I would have been like, could we do a cartoon? Anyways, Midnight Mass uh, is on Netflix and it's it's seven episodes of sheer terror. Uh, tell us, why did you uh, choose Midnight Mass, Christine? Um, so my background is I grew up Episcopal. I have worked in Catholic schools. I've worked with some Baptists. I've worked with a whole bunch of other things. I now work with United Methodists, but Catholics and mass and specifically the Eucharist has always been something that has been really integral to the point that I actually took a classroom, Stephen Sprinkle, Dr. Stephen Sprinkle and Dr. Timothy Robinson at Bright about the Eucharist. And, um, this is why I, uh, probably chose it was because I was attracted to it because it was Catholics and um, I love my Catholics. I actually worked at a Marianist school, which is different than some Catholic groupings because they are, they may follow the Pope and everything and the Bishop and whatnot, but they're Marianist and Marianists believe that laity is equal to clergy, which is kind of an interesting play. Um, and that they were also very invested in Mary in a different way than perhaps what has been stereotyped of the Catholic church, even though it's the same way as everyone else. But yeah, so that's why I... I, I chose it. And also I don't watch horror. I watched like three horror movies in the last 20 years. And one of them I would consider is like the nightmare before Christmas. Oh, we just talked about the nightmare before yeah. Christmas. The yeah. Yes. All right. Well, this is not Halloween. This is just toxic church at its utmost. Yeah. Uh, Midnight Mass tells the story of a guy going home to a church. Um, I'm sorry. I need to write down names and I didn't do it well. Riley Flynn. 
Riley. Um, comes home to the town of Crockett Island. It's a dying maritime village. And there's a mysterious young priest who uh, is kind of a vampire's thrall. And uh, it gets weirder and harder. And also it holds a mirror up to the church pretty well, too. Well, he doesn't start as a vampire. He's, he becomes a vampire when he finally dies. Um, he's re- resurrected in the third episode called Psalms. No, called Proverbs. Um, and his name was Father Paul. And it became, and we realize around them that he's Father Pruitt, who is uh, previously the pastor who is having dementia issues and ended up in the Holy Land for a pilgrimage. And that is where he came across the angel. So, right. Who's a vampire. Mm-hmm. I mean, do, do they actually ever say the word vampire in the show? No, they do not. Right. And, no. and is it a vampire? Is it a zombie? Is it a little bit of both? Are they all undead? Because there was a lot of um, of what that looks like. Um, I was unclear. The, the literary part of it is definitely vampires. It mirrors the whole giving of blood into somebody. Mm-hmm. They have to die. Then they can be reborn and sucking of blood. Um, everything is carried through blood in the series. And in one of the episodes, like you see the fact that the blood burns in sunlight. Um, and the entire idea is that this is a disease. Mm. It, it comes, but they never, that, that doesn't really explain how the angel can carry the disease and, and continue with it. And yes, the angel is the vampire. Um, just investments alone, though, like angel wearing investment at one point is perhaps the freakiest thing in the world to me. And that's the most horrific thing. So speaking of vestments, if you haven't checked out our sponsor, Jeff, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Uh, do go to jeffwonro.com. Don't dress up undead oh. demons in said vestments, please. It's true. But there was a point in which um, I was real like there is some deep and like accurate and good theology here and also some really terrible theology as with lots of things, but I was surprised by the amount of like, I, I, or maybe it's not good, but it's functioning. It's the, it's the, 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 uh, the theology that actually like sits there and functions and that we all like could address and name, but like at the very beginning, um, uh, the, oh gosh, father Paul is like wearing white. And, um, I think it is Ash Wednesday. Yes, and it's Ash Wednesday, and I, Bev says, like, why are you wearing that? You know, right, I think it's Bev. It's Someone asks him, why are you wearing it? And then, like, later on in the series, he's wearing the same um, the same vestment, and it's white. It's white again. And it he explains that he wore it because it, like, he, it was, he was brand new. It was a resurrection, a time of resurrection. And as people as we continue to name ourselves as people of the resurrection ourselves and us you know being a very kind of generalized statement um i was like oh this is a perfect way in which a now we are going back to jeff one row i was like how uh how our liturgical vestments actually say who we are and where we are um in our not only just like in spaces but in like our spirit like in who we are and how we dress and i thought again as a three i was very much like ooh that I like this fanciness and I like the money to get me one of these. And also like, Oh, how terrifying. Like now I'm going to be very wary of any pastor that wears like uh, liturgical colors outside of their liturgical season. Well, and one of the things about Catholics is you wear white to a funeral, you wear white because that's the resurrection. And in fact, they even like the Paschal candle that you find at Easter during a funeral service and they have the communion during the funeral service. So like, when I look back at that, I was like, this is, a little too real as far as a funeral service and then the rebirth part. 
Um, but the guy grew up Catholic from what I understand. So he definitely understands Catholicism at a level that most of us may not understand unless we had ingratiated ourselves into the Catholic theology. Well, and it's, it's, it's obvious that he has a true love of, of the church. I mean, you know, uh, love is weird. Um, but there's this, it, for me, this really rang true because like, okay, really hoping there's not vampires being hidden in like small churches and small towns, um, maybe there are life force stealing entities uh, in our institutions that we create. And I would like to talk about that more, but like Bev, I, I've ministered in congregations with Bev's. Um, I will probably minister in congregations with Bev's in the future. Um, I don't know that there's a congregation that exists without a Bev though. Well, okay. So that was actually kind of my question. Do we need Bev's on which to sharpen ourselves? I think BEVs are, can be helpful, but I also believe that a lot of things that we like to view negatively can also be a positive in the end, depending on how you look at it. That's positive psychology. And I know that not everybody leans into positive psychology because it is like, it's only been around for like 15 to 20 years as far as psychology goes. But then again, psychology has only been around for about a hundred years where there's actual theories. Um, But Bev, I think, is a really important character because we all can also be Bev at different times, depending on what we decide to cling to. I cling to some things and I fully recognize that I'm really irritated that some churches don't do purple candles. Mm. Are you are you anti-blue candles during Advent? I'm very anti-blue. It is purple and a pink candle, period, end of discussion. And if you have all blue, I understand why you cling to that. I just think it's wrong. So for those of you listening who haven't watched Midnight Mass, because maybe you love yourself because you know you're in the fear triad and you don't want to be scared all the time. Uh, for those of you who haven't watched it, Bev... I would argue is the primary antagonist of the show. She is bigoted, holier than thou, more than willing to compromise all of her ethics and values. She basically leads the let's go on a vampire riot at the end of the show. We're a spoiler show. I'm sorry. I guess I could have said that before I led that. And she bursts into flames at the end, trying to save her own butt. And it's really kind of satisfying to watch. And schadenfreude is real. What? Well, her in the juxtaposition of the Muslim family that is praying as they go out in glory is just so beautiful in so many ways. And I don't usually say horror is beautiful, but there is something beautiful about that alternate thing. Uh, No, I agree. I'm I'm looking at how she's how Bev is described in like her character on on Wiki. It says she's a zealous and overbearing member of St. Patrick's Church and an influential figure in the community. Just that by that description alone, we every church has them Mm -hmm. Um, and we think every church wants them. And that like there there is something to her, especially at the very beginning where she's she's so faithful. She's so like. There is a lot that I, I, I get out of, like, I get Bev. Um, I get uh, actually most of these characters I can name, at least in my congregation, neither now or ones that I have served in really beautiful ways. Like, oh, you show up for lots of different reasons. I have showed up in church for lots of different reasons. Um, and yet there's a very particular twist on this. But I, um, so Deuces out there, we are part. I've watched the whole series. I don't think Arthur watched the whole series. Oh, no, I watched exactly what I was told to watch. Exactly, which was was episode six and seven. So just so you know, that is where we are going to primarily focus. But um, Christine and I have watched all of it. um, And we, it's fine that we will talk about it. I've read synopses. I've read recap. I've read as much as I can because there aren't many pictures in it. And I'm fine with reading about it. 
Yes. I'm a big um, wuss. Like I own that. I'm, with- <laughs> I'm happy, but I want to know. Okay. So in season in episode six, um, mm-hmm. it is when father Paul has told everyone kind of like who he is, what has happened to him on this Holy land trip. Um, and you know, he really has revitalized this community, like through like, what is as we find out, he has been sharing this kind of lifeblood and are uh, this angel blood and people have been, um, uh, miracles abound, you know, like things have been happening and it's not inaccurate to what we read in scripture, right? It's pretty just like, oh, this is exactly what scripture, if you take scripture to a like very practical literal space, not the like, it are you to- referring to the, do not be afraid? Well, it just kind of all of it. I mean, but in this, in the last, yes, in the last, do, you, do not be afraid piece. So I'm trying to give a little context without like, uh, again, I watched it last night. So my content, we all know I ramble. It's fine. Um, but uh, so he asks everyone, you know, like the things of the Bible, the things that he has been preaching, the things that we preach weekly were coming true. And it was very much like, this is what's happening, right? It. Uh, it, it, the Bible was coming to life in right in front of them. So I'm curious um, for each of you, particularly in your own faith journey and whatnot, given your relationship to the church and scripture and all of that, would you have drank the drink? Like, would you have taken what we know is now poison? But if the the teachings of your faith are coming true in front of your very eyes, uh, do you lean in or are you one of the like four that are like a uh, hard pass by? <laughs> um, Arthur, I don't know if you want to go first on that one. I, I don't need miracles. Um, I, I always stand by the feeding of the 5,000. The more miraculous thing is that people shared what they said they didn't have. Like, I don't think Jesus created matter because I think the universe has laws and I get it. Like resurrection breaks that law and everything else. But I see it more as like, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. All those women that weren't counted probably had snacks for the children in a patriarchal society because they knew they had to give the kid a bag of figs to shut him up while they walked home, that kind of thing, whatever it's. So like, I don't, I don't, I would actually not trust a faith healing. I don't trust faith healing uh, because I think it has to be private. That being said, if somebody's like, look, I got these rich people to digest everything they have. And we're going to like, radically renovate our community to be more equanimous. I think that I would be like, okay, I can, I can figure out how to get rid of my house or whatever. I don't know. Um, but it's really bad form to ask a disciple. Would you drink the poison spit? Shame <laughs> on you. Listen, <laughs> true. First of all, <laughs> the great sin of disciples is that, but uh I I fully joined disciples well after all of that and knowing so you know that's my own issue. Um, I don't know, Christine. What do you think? Um, so I think that one of the things about me personally is that I research everything quite in depth and I see how lots of things play out. Um, I had an inkling that there was a vampire as soon as cats washed up on a beach. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I know where this is going. I know where this is going, and I was super excited about it because I love predicting things. Um, well, they were without blood. They said without blood. I was like, okay, so there's a vampire. Got it. Moving on. Christine is alive on the Enneagram. Every time that's obvious, take a shot. <laughs> Don't be drunk, please. <laughs> but no, like, um, that's actually one of the games I play with movies. If I can't predict the end, then 
I don't usually like watching it, but if I can predict me. Here's my question. I'm sorry. We'll get right back on Midnight Mass. Go ahead. I have to know this. I don't mind people who predict stuff about movies. You don't share those predictions. Oh. Okay, good. We can still watch movies together. because Unless require, someone tells me they want to know, I don't say it. I require utter silence during movies. My daughter does not understand that. Anyhow, okay. Uh, your daughter and I will go to movies together. It's fine. <laughs> you can take my two as well then. Um, so no, I actually, I don't think I would have taken it. Um, and the other thing is, is like, I've, kind of proven to myself that everybody's doing something. I'm definitely not going to do that until we see how it plays out. Like that's kind of one of those things that I do um, from a nerdy perspective, I guess. And uh, at the same time, I can understand though, I've never turned down Eucharist. So (laughs) the idea of turning down Eucharist in a Catholic service is like, you don't do that. You just don't do that. You go and partake the Eucharist. That's one of the reasons why the Pope just recently said, those sins are minor. They're forgiven during the confession before we do the Eucharist. Um, sorry, I follow those things. No, that's good. I did you. You do not have to say you're sorry for researching and knowing things. Those are two things we actually admire and appreciate <laughs> on two on one, and more people surely should or do, and you're great. So Eucharistic theology. Um, something that I discovered gets pushback is when we say we are the next coming of Christ until the last coming of Christ. That is, you know, this is my body. Well, great. You take the body, you chew it up, you swallow it. The body is in you. Therefore you are the body out in the world, cup of the covenant, that kind of stuff. What does it mean that they don't really give the people a choice to participate in the cup of Christ? They give them the choice to die after receiving the cup of Christ. Like you don't get to join in the covenant, but you do get to test this. And I'm not going to call it resurrection. Desurrection? I don't know. Desurrection. Unsurrection? Uh, Improper resurrection is probably more in my head. Well, but they're not. uh, Jesus doesn't make undead people. Jesus makes living people. And the people who die and come back are just no longer dead. They're not alive. That's true. Thank you, Dungeons and Dragons. I, I lean towards like you do not lie to somebody about what you're giving them on that thing. If it's gluten free, you make it clear. If it's not gluten-free, you make it clear. You do not poison somebody for the sake of poisoning them. Like there is an intimate trust level that goes into being fed off the table from any table, but specifically the Eucharistic table. And actually, when I saw that that's what was happening in the film, I kind of had a little bit of a panic attack thinking back about how many times people could have manipulated that. So, Uh, I mean, I think as disciples, I uh, very aware of it. (laughs) Um, but I'm, I'm with you. I, I, it took me by surprise as well. How, um, how affected I was that someone would, um, would poison, would utilize the, the cup of grace, you know, the, the, the bread of life for, uh, malicious and evil purposes. Not that it probably hasn't been done, you know, like I'm sure that there have been people that are like, yeah, it's gluten-free. Don't worry about it. You know, like, and, and it's not, or whatever, all of that. Um, but I was really like, oh, I don't like that. Like, uh, I, I don't mind horror. So like that whole thing was happening, but like, I very much was like, <laughs> don't mess with the, like, well, don't, don't mess with my beloved communion. Like, Can I tell you as a recovering alcoholic, um, like there's absolutely, I've been in an Episcopalian service where I've done the whole like bread thing. I've walked up to the cup and smelling it. I've been like, nope. And like walked. Um, Sorry, I, I jumped in, but yeah, don't, but don't mess with communion. Can you not do grape juice 
at least somewhere so that I can not worship a lowercase G God at the table of my uppercase G God, please. You know, so, And I think part of that is the table. One of the things that I'm also intrigued by, and it's been something since, since I was an Episcopalian, I grew up thinking you had to be baptized to have communion, or you had to have gone through first com- communion or confirmation. In our family, we went through confirmation before you could have communion because you needed to understand what it was you were partaking in. Um, and so me and my twin sister got dressed up in the white dresses and the white veils, got our cheeks slapped by the bishop, and then we got to have communion for the first time. Um, when I ended up at... What? Yeah, wait, cheek slapping. Oh, yeah, the bishop sl- slaps your cheek like that whenever to like slap Jesus, slap Jesus into you or slap the devil out of you, whatever it is. It's like a confirmation thing in Southern Episcopalian. What? <laughs> oh. I, well, I was- slap. You're telling me that I could invent a liturgy where I get to slap people and I haven't done that? No. If you're a bishop. No, you not. Nope. No, you do not. I don't think the disciples of Christ would, would smile on that given where they stand on some things, but. Are you a, are you a cishet white male boomer? I've got a new liturgy. <laughs> I mean, I may not totally disagree with it, but also we do not believe in touching other people's bodies without their consent. Right. But the, well, you know it was coming. I know. So when I became a youth director and I had kids getting confirmed, I made sure and told them, ask the bishop so that it doesn't surprise you. Because mm-hmm. some bishops do it and some don't. Wow. Um, it is an old school thing. And I don't think there's really any bishops anymore that do it any more than like a love tap, like just kind of like gently tap. But I remember it was like, it was enough that it would, if you didn't know it was going to happen, it would shock you type thing. Um, but that was Bishop Allard. I love him to death. I love the fact that I got slapped by him because I think it's kind of cool. <laughs> um like the prayer book that he signed is up there, um, but that's off on the side of, side of track. So just as a heads up, that's a sidetrack. Um, but when it comes to the 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 communion table, who gets to serve, who is served, and who actually has access to serve are three totally different things. And when I was working at the Catholic Church, I wasn't allowed to take communion. I got to go up, cross my arms, and get a blessing, even though I had more religious training and probably could pass a catechist test over practically everybody in that entire diocese that was teaching theology, I could have passed it along with them. But because I wasn't, I don't know how to, um, I didn't know how to explain it to the Catholics that it was incredibly uh, alienating to all of the kids that were not Catholic and especially to the teachers that weren't Catholic, but had a very good understanding of it. And part of it is I do understand they're coming from it as this their thought is that they have the one true faith and there's certain people that are in communion with them that can partake in the table. And there's other people that are not. And while I understand that, and I went from a, from Catholic light, well, Catholic light is Episcopal to like Episcopal light, which is Methodist. Um, it was actually because I was talking with somebody and it may have been actually Arthur about the table and how it was open, not just to who could partake from it, but who could serve at it and bless the elements. And I know that y'all don't call it a sacrament any at all. Um, I'll call it an ordinance, but it's a sacrament. Come on. Okay. I call it a sacrament. It is a sacrament to me. And if it's not a sacrament to you, we're calling it a sacrament today because I'm in charge right now. Um, and, uh, I'm here for it. (laughs) So, um, but they, I remember going to a service and there was a kid that blessed it. And I was like, this is shocking my brain. And I don't know how to partake in this. Not to mention the fact that y'all did the grape juice part, which I still wasn't prepared for at that time in my life, because we had always done really good wine. Um, like to the point that I, at one of the churches I served, the lady took a sip of the wine to test it just to make sure it wasn't bad. And she's like, no, no, she went home and got a better bottle of port out of her, you know, winery thing that she had, because it was one of those 
richer congregations. Um, but um, like who gets to be served? And then also it's even, it's even like spiraled for me of how do you have access to the table? Is it brought to you if you can't get up and make it to the altar? Is it, is it part of that to recognize in the, in the you know, congregation who cannot access it? And if somebody can't access it to bless it, that is also a conversation that I think we need to be having because there's so many churches that could be retrofitted to enable everybody to have access for it, except for the fact that there's stairs up to the chancel rail. Oh, and why is that? And anyways, so in this particular one, the people that have access to it are the Catholics and Bev is the keeper of it in the last episode or the second to last episode. She actually sends somebody out that I think Sturge turned because Sturge was just like, this is a good person. Um, he's always been good to me. And I just wanted him to come along. And that's when honestly, uh, father Pruitt goes, holy crap, what have we been doing? And that was his turning moment. And he walks away at that moment and he gets a good place to die with his Mildred and with his daughter, Sarah. Um, and yes, he's a Catholic priest with a kid. That's part of it is the, the idea that he has to hold on so tightly to it, to a concept of what a pastor and a priest is supposed to be and exemplify this model to everybody while also giving up the love that he intended and wanted to partake in. Um, so that's a lot. And he takes off. That, the was, that the was a lot. And he, does a- that, he does the, this, for those of you that have never seen anyone do this, it pops right out. I know it was, I was shocked. I did not grow up in the church. You all know this. Uh, my mom grew up Catholic uh, and was very intentionally like, you're not being a, we are not raising our kids in that tradition. And uh, my dad's part of his family was Mormon and my best friend is Mormon. So I've got a lot of weird influences. My very first, like Good, real. I'm not, I'm not Mormon. <laughs> <It's really sorry. laughs> um, but yeah, I, I grew up. But I'm, uh, I was, I was shocked. So for those of you that don't know, I just popped my collar. It's a piece of plastic that pops in your pops in and out. There are different ones, obviously, but that's this one. Um, but I'm, I'm with you on like who has access and who has, uh, as of, again, I'm the only religious one in my family, which is a, um, a, a very unique dynamic. And so like the very first time my parents came to who are not religious and intentionally brought us up outside the church, it was not like a an eight like it wasn't like an atheist sort of thing because like the talk of God was there. It was just like that gets to be what you want it to be and manifest in your life however you want it. Um and my brother went one way of my brother identifies as you know an atheist very much so and all of that and then I went the other way. Um but they were like I went to serve them communion and they were like can we take this? Like we haven't we're not a part of your church. We haven't been you know my dad is my different part of the conversation, but my dad was my mom's Catholicness. When I was born, she was like, my baby needs to be baptized just because uh, for the fear of it. And so my dad was baptized with me just like, cause why not? And which I think is a very sweet thing. And he made sure he went and got water from, I was baptized in my backyard, but he went and got water from our family home upstate, a place that's really meaningful for us, which as a disciple, I really wish like I had the remember the memory of my baptism, but also like the story of that is really beautiful for me, but they were, they're always like, when do we kneel? Can we eat this? Can we pray? How do we do this? And what I like about our tradition is that it is for everyone. And yet 
part of my call story very much uh, involves the saints, which disciples don't have. And so like, I think that this show particularly does well to say there are really good things in, in certain spaces. And yet what is meaningful to you can be expansive beyond what you understand to be the parameters of your denomination or faith life. That was really, really, really beautifully said, by the way. And I, I understand the not remembering your baptism bit because my eight-year-old got mad at me the other day when she realized that she'd already been baptized. Hmm. Um, That's kind of hilarious. I was baptized. I was infant baptized at 23. Um, (laughs) So I got sprinkled in a Presbyterian church. I thought that I had to be baptized to go to seminary and it was Pentecost and it was the pastor I was working for his birthday. And uh, I always tell people you don't have to understand what's happening in ordinances or sacraments for them to still work. (laughs) Um, It is interesting because we're using the language of take and receive. And I want to come back to that because something I I literally griped up, but not griped. I talked about in my sermon yesterday. Is it bad? I think of preaching as griping sometimes. Oh, that it's. Are you saying that it's given, receive, and never it's, take? It's received. It is never taken. You do not take communion. It's not yours to take. It is a gift from God. Eucharist, uh, Christo, Charis, use the Greek. So therefore, there's something about coming with your hands out and receiving it. And therefore, the person uh, serving is giving it out there. It's not theirs to disperse, right? Like there's there's this whole song and dance to it. Ah! Um and it's uh and also the accessibility thing. We have stairs up the chancel because the stairs were an easy way for people to be seen by people sitting in the pews. And we did it before the ADA, and churches were exempted from the ADA, and it was a stupid idea. And we absolutely like as we talk about more and more open tables and the gospel of inclusivity and accessibility, we seem like big stupid hypocrites sometimes. Yes. And right. I don't, well, I, I don't, so one gripe away. I don't think, I think that sometimes uh, churches need a good gripe because we can't always present the the pretty fluffiness that is, you know, uh, the gospel in the world all the time. I like the gospel in the world has pretty fluffiness to it, but it can't always, if we don't talk about the harder parts, the more challenging parts of life, then we, um, uh, we lean into hypocrisy. We lean, we, we, we have, we set expectations that aren't realistic and, and, and that turns more into, um, shame and guilt and all of the things that like, we don't need more of in the church. Um, and so, uh, but I want to push back on the, sometimes I think it's okay to take it. Um, as you were saying that, and only because so my final, one of my interview questions for my final interview for ordination for me was someone asked, uh, if, you know, if if you're, who can take communion, you know, it's the, like anyone and anyone, I don't care every single human. And they're like, well, what if it was an unbaptized kid? Come on up, have a piece of bread. You know, and they're like, well, what if it was a Muslim man? Come on in, have, have a piece of bread. Uh, because I know, and that's where I'm like, uh, just for those of you that are listening to this, I, Christine and I just had the moment where we're, (laughs) we're thinking the same thing, I think maybe, um, but I was like, because I, you never know, first of all, or I don't know, uh, who, why they are coming to this table. If all they see is a loaf of bread, maybe they don't, maybe they're hearing impaired. Maybe they're blind. Who knows? But all they smell or see is a piece of bread and they are hungry. I am going to give it to them, whether or not it is blessed, whether or not they believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, whether they believe in anything. 
they are hungry. That is what I am feeding. Um, and sometimes there is bread left over. At the end of that, is it not still Eucharist? And if I put it out on the table, say, whoever wants to take this home, go ahead and take it. Are they not taking it? If I put it out on the sidewalk, would they not be taking it? And so for me, I think there is something to, if you need it, take it. And for those in the faith, um, receive it. And see, I don't, uh, I don't know if I believe the bread is the Eucharist after it's blessed. Because I, I, I think it's this. Sure. Eucharist, in my opinion, in my learned theological opinion, I think Eucharist has to be between two people or at least two people, like two or three gather in my name, there Jesus is, right? So there has to be this act of, and maybe this is AA seeping into my theology, which I appreciate of like uh, the fifth step, it's it's we're honest with God, ourselves, and another human being. Um, there, there kind of needs to be another person, right? Um but also, yes, once it's blessed, okay, yes, you can absolutely take it, especially if it's freely offered. But I think there's a difference between freely offering it or saying this is a gift or this is out there or it is yours if you want it as you need it, as opposed to saying, I'm going to march up to that table and I'm going to take it. What if they did? What if someone who's hungry walked right in and took it? So from the John Wesley perspective, which yeah, I was like, Chrissy, Arthur and I can go back and forth about this. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're listening to two on zero. Excuse me, Christine, I'm sorry. The John Wesley perspective is you keep taking it and you keep participating in it until you have the belief system that goes along with it. Um, an Episcopal side of me goes, no, no, you only take it if you really believe in the trans part of it, where like I'm, I get the words confused. So one is one is where it changes to the flesh, which is Catholic. And one is where it changes kind of in spirit, which is more Episcopalian. Um, say what? Uh, trans is Catholic, con is Episcopalian. Yeah. Something. I Yeah, substantiation. There we go. Um, sorry. Uh, so in the Catholic church, like you can actually go to services where you literally see a piece of uh, the host in this beautiful, it is beautiful, and you adore it. You, like it's literally called adoration because you adore it because it's part of Jesus's flesh. Um, and so in the Catholicness of it, and um, I, I find a really intriguing thing, but in the Episcopal side of it, where it's consubstantiation, that's right. Um, I also, I have a really hard time going, okay, people can have this that don't believe um, because I struggle with that so much from my Episcopal upbringing. Now, I totally know that that is kind of like that implicit uh well, the implicit bias that you may have or something like that, that actually really bears no weight. Because when I look at that and I go, wait, there's this greater love of God and grace of Jesus of, you know, all extents and purposes, love can shatter everything and fix everything. I really shouldn't give a sh about the fact that somebody has uh, taken communion from a plate and they, they aren't baptized, like, or they don't understand it. I should care more about the fact that they're learning to understand it. So I lean towards John Wesley a little bit in that case, which is one of those things that I hold on to. But the really interesting, and I, I, she brought it up and I remembered the thought that I had um, Good, yeah. was that they actually, as Catholics, gave a Muslim boy communion yes. Yes. in order for him to be turned to the vampire situation. And the thing is, is you can't do that so there is a little, there's a little free for all in taking of what theology means, because there is no way Father Pruitt, there is no way Bev, there is no way even the church, like the kids that uh, serve the acolytes, you are taught if there is a piece of bread, a host that drops on the ground, you run over and you consume it immediately because that is Jesus's body. 
And so there is no way that they would have served that to somebody that was Muslim. And it is obvious in this town, they know who is Catholic and who is not. Um, So I still am struck by that to some degree. Well, so then, but that's the interesting thing in it of, so we're, we're, we're coming into it. And I'm sure there's actually rules and regulations about what happens if a vampire's blood is mixed with the host and like, you know, all this stuff. Maybe there's an exception for Muslims in that case. And like, you know, whatever papal bull covers that. But so what does it mean when the rules are the rules until the rules aren't? And how might, how, what's the positive message from midnight mass for the church is my question. Right. Cause I've been wrestling with that. And my thing is whole, like the, the rules are the rules until it's not like, man, we really want you to, to benefit from this community's new initiative based in the covenant, the cup of the new covenant. So we're going to look the other way. Um, I'm also shocked that none of them noticed that there was a different flavor in their wine, because when you're Catholic, you drink the same wine every single week. It's this bottle jug. It's the same jug and you know it. There's a picture of the Pope on it going. Well, no, that would be kind of cool though. (laughs) Carlo Rossi. Um, and yeah, no. Well, and so I also really liked that the Muslim family or the Muslim man is the police of the town, right? So he is the 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 rule of what is the town. And yet, you know, you have the law of the church and how that plays into uh, that relationship. And I'm wondering, I think, well, to answer Arthur's question, for me, where I think the, the good message, what is the good news of Midnight Mass, is... Uh, I think it is to 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 have to lean into curiosity, as I want to say, I think to to question the authority and the working of God in a certain space as you understand it or as it is being presented to you to be the rightful path of all of us. That if it is it is okay to say, I I got a question here Um, and and to name that question as also a working part of God. Um, that it's not just this like singular path that happens. And so for me, as I was like, as I watched till the end and all that happens and it kind of just, again, has its own good Friday moment, right. Where it just kind of burns. Um, it, it, it's one, it, it, it positions us to say, why do we do the things we do? Why do we believe the things we believe and to what cost and what end? Um, because if we believe as I do, like, you know, that God is everywhere and working in and through all things, or at least the capability of doing so, um, you know, uh, what part of God is still left in that community and still working. Yeah. Ooh, that's good. And I, well, and I'm just, I'm thinking how, here's a question for us all. We are heading into the fourth Sunday of Advent, which feels impossible. And yet here we are, um, which for us is love. I know lots of people name them in different orders, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to posit it as love for all of us uh, because joy was last week. Um, long suffering. What? Our, ours is long suffering. All right. I'm just kidding. Not because of a theme. It was just a stupid yeah. joke. Please ignore me. Oh, I was like, I mean, it could very well be. I mean, is love long suffering is another question. Um, is to love long suffering? Yes. Um, especially I think in faith traditions. But so how how do we see the theme of Advent and love and like the preparation that comes in this time um played out throughout this either series or um in these episodes? 
I saw love in very small moments throughout the episodes. Like Sarah was definitely not Christian, not Catholic, not anything. And yet she clung to being a source of friendship for Aaron, who had just returned from a marriage that she had divorced from that was, you know, tragic in a lot of ways and helping her through with a pregnancy. Um, I saw it in these small little outtakes, the, the acolyte that is turned to a vampire and is scared to death. And there's another person there that supports him, even though they're both pretty much, they know what's going to happen in the end is going to be burning in death. Um, the fact that Riley's parents turn to each other and have this conversation, and then they start singing a hymn, a church hymn that, um, I'm not sure if it's Catholic cause I don't remember ever hearing it in the Catholic church that I went to, but gr- granted kind of like all churches, you pick like your 10 favorites and that's what rotates through. Um, but they, th- what's really interesting also, if you want to look at the music of it from a side note, they pay, played con- kind of contemporary, uh, Neil Diamond ish music in the first two episodes. The third episode is when they actually halfway through the third, the second episode, they start with hymns and they just do hymns all the way through for the rest. And in episode four, there are no, there's no music at all. That's like identifiable. Um, so even from that trickled on thing, I found that really interesting. Like this, there's this transition. Anyways, that's me being a nerd. Um, no, I, I, I was with that. I, I liked it a lot. Um, but there is this issue of all of the all of the greatest moments are not cast about in large ways. They're very small, intimate moments. Riley and Aaron having very small, intimate moments, and I think that's really where you find God is in intimacy. And yes, you can find intimacy in great groups. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure that people can witness it like that. Um, I'm sure that extroverts can feel that loving and that empowerment without manipulation of air conditioning units in their uh, mega churches. But at the same time, I think that often we ignore those smaller moments because if we want to get right down to it, Jesus had 12 disciples. That was not a big group in reality. That was a small and a lot of small, intimate moments that happened. Um, even when he was out on the boat, there was just a few of them. Um, these are small, intimate moments. And that's really where we know what love is. We know what grace feels like because it's not something that can be cast super wide and everybody feels the warmth of it. But when it's just cast only in your direction, it's much more powerful. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things that I very much enjoyed of the movie. Warren, uh, played by a guy named Igby Rigney, uh, which makes my heart really happy is one of the two survivors of the town along with a daughter who uh, was losing Lisa. her. Lisa. 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 What does it mean that resurrection looks like going back to the status quo, so to speak? Um, you know, there's, there's the, uh, in, in Pauline letters, the suggestion at the end of Galatians, he writes, uh, look what large letters I make with my own hand in chapter six. Some people think that I think the prevailing theory is that Paul was losing his eyesight. And the joke is uh, I was blind, but now I see, and I'm also going blind again. Um, and whatever sighted people, not sighted people, it's metaphorical in and of itself. I like to think he's writing with emphasis, like he's writing in all caps. Look what big letters I'm making idiots, um, which makes more sense for Galatians. But what does it mean that resurrection um, also ends up, returning it's transformation not resurrection at the end one could argue i think some people theorize that that's the adam and eve of the entire situation that they're going to rekindle it there is a theory that lisa is losing her her uh, ability to walk again and not feeling her legs again because she is going through the process of that working it's the blood whatever issue working its way out of her bloodstream but most people say that the reason that that 
it goes away is it's kind of like when a vampire sires people and they're his children. When the vampire dies, everybody else dies. Mm. Um, and so there's a bunch of theories with that. I personally like to lean towards the fact that they're both because they're definitely not going back to what it was. They're, they can't return to that island. There's nowhere for them to live. They're teenagers abandoned, essentially. So they're going to have to figure out a way to get to some sort of civilization that can support them and help them, especially with Lisa and her situation. Like the, her, her wheelchair was obviously probably burned and all of these things and mechanisms that she was used to, um, which that part of the fact that they're 30 miles out from a, with a rowboat really does make me nervous that they're just going to die. Um, like the pessimist side of me is like, that's not... Um, like even Boy Scouts would be like, pass. So, um. well, and I wonder, uh, so for me, I was like the resurrection here is actually resurrecting from, from that kind of like sinfulness that they had all like kind of uh, been a part of, right? Lisa's legs go, I thought, I thought it was interesting, right? When we think of resurrection in, in the church, like, uh, like, human churches like not tv church uh our churches there's a like or the kingdom and things that we talk about in that regard right it's a lot of like there's the healing the lack of suffering you know it's 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 all the good things and yet for lisa particularly in this moment what it means to be free of all that had happened the resurrection of this life is actually for her to not to be able to walk and to go back to what was and to not walk again which for me was a really beautiful kind of way of saying like even in our brokenness, we are whole. And like, that is like, what are we resurrecting from? And two is, uh, is the question that like continues to cycle through all of this, but is also someone who likes to work in the book of revelation. So for dudes out there, if you have not watched it, all seven episodes are named after either books or like uh, sections of the Bible. So there's the gospels or like the last one is revelation, right? Revelation is all about the deconstruction of empire. Um, and so what it did for me in what I watching this whole Island burn, right. And like, just really kind of like destroy itself into these two teenagers on a boat, um, was very much, I was like, Oh, this is kind of the end of the Bible. This really does like, um, posture us back into the cycle of both faith and life that we are called into because we have deconstructed what is the empire of that space. And so I was like, this is, I was like, Dr. Carter would love this. Um, and, and I really liked it too. And I thought, um, for me, what does resurrection look like? It does look like two teenagers in a boat going into the unknown, um, in, in their wholeness, which may also be very broken. That's the line today, Spiff. Resur- Resurrection looks like two teenagers going off into the wilderness in a boat. Like, I love that. It's good. Sorry. I, I, I feel like I do that a lot. I'm just like, that's the best thing I've heard today. But that's the best thing I've heard today. Or one no, of them. I just, uh, I, I think we, I think we like to think that there's an answer to what resurrection is. Mm. And in my understanding and faith and belief system, I don't know that there is one, at least one that is universal um, for all of us. I really like that your resurrection is not ableist. (laughs) Uh, I try. I try and make sure, you know, because I don't believe that our resurrection would be ableist. I don't believe that our resurrection would be that God works in any sort of hegemonic way, to be really honest. Uh, This is what two-on-one started off as, is just like friends, like not even positing questions always, but just like having the conversation that I think church needs to have anyways. Where are you standing? Who are you? Why do we believe what we believe? Um, And so 
my question to each of you uh, in this space is where do you see God at work um, in this show? We talk about turning or we talked about turning and we didn't come on to that of turning is repentance is metanoia. Um, they turn not when they become vampires, they turn at the end where they, when they sing nearer my God to thee and they burst into flames. That's God at work. That is the graceful absolution. Mm. I like that. Yeah. Christine, what do you think? Um, the thing that spoke the most to me was I I've always kind of had this thing about how we limited the gospels to four gospels, like, sorry, uh, that there's multiple people that have encountered, uh, Jesus in different ways. And the four gospels that we have while they're canonized and they have been exegeted to, you know, kingdom come and will continue to be exegeted into kingdom come now. Um, I think that there is an important aspect of the fact that the gospel is the witness of Jesus in somebody's life. And the episode that's called gospels is episode five. Um, and that's where Riley goes out onto the ocean, whatever, in a boat with Aaron and tells Aaron the entire story of how he was converted, the conversations that he had with uh, Father Paul. Um, and then he essentially burns up as the sun comes up to prove to her that this is what it is. And his gospel is really this like shift, pivotal shift, because Riley's not seen for the rest, of, like he's not a character in the rest of the series. So in at the fifth episode, he's gone. Six and seven are without him. It's the story of after him and the story of the apostles, which are Aaron and Sarah and Sheriff Hassan. Um, but that gospel, that idea that we can share the truth and extend it and ensure the safety and quality and um, hope for others, I think is really important, especially when it comes to sacrificing yourself. And especially when it comes to the fact that he was labeled this very terrible human being because he made an accident, because he was, he had an addiction. Um, and this, this thing came out of the fact that he had an addiction. And so he was labeled this and he truly proves that it's not, you're not a bad person. He was a good person. He resolved and created the, the, the entryway out for these people to close down what was the problem. And granted, all three of them died, all the three apostles, Aaron dies and everything like that. But, um, and we didn't even get into the fact that Aaron is a serious heroine. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the gospel, the fact it's called gospels and it's mainly Riley's gospel in that moment, I think is really important for us to remind our students, to remind our humans that you have a witness, you have the ability to continue sharing good, even when it's hard. And it's especially hard sometimes because mm -hmm. like, no, I'm with you. And I think for me, I was very much taken back. I, I, we talk about this often. Um, like, I don't think we, we offer like prayers of lament enough. And I don't think that we posture ourselves in, in that sort of way as a church, uh, often enough. And so, um, you know, two on one has really messed with my brain on how I watch TV anymore, like anything. And so I'm always looking for like, God at work and what is happening. And, um, I kept watching, especially something called like Midnight Mass. Where is God in this? And I kept watching and waiting and watching and waiting to have that like aha moment. Like, ah, there she is. Uh, and then I was like at the very end when Father Pruitt, Father Paul, the, the Paul Pruitt, you know, person um, who has been the kind of um, uh, 
triumphant hero of this gospel, right? Of we all need to do this thing and take this blood and change and be and like connect yourself to what is right in front of you, you know, and he's preaching that, that uh, supposed good news, right? It, it, it is there. And then in the end, he is remorseful. He There is lament, there is repentance. And for the work that he was really passionate about and faithful to his whole life. And in the last moment where he says, you know, or comes to understand his sin and his wrongness, um, I was like, oh, there, that's the God moment right there. Not in an entire life of a priest, but in the last moment in where he says my work here, and I'm not saying this for all of us, obviously we're, I'm clergy, like I fully believe in all these things, but like in that last moment of his real humanness, did I see the witness of God uh, at work or the, not the witness, but the, the work of God um, come to fruition in, in that pivotal moment um, in which to say, which we started off this in full circle, uh, we need to value the understanding, the witness, the work that God is doing with uh, everyone, not just ordained leaders, those that are called to lead uh, faith spaces, but our lay leaders, our children, our, um, the people that come in and question why you do everything, which sometimes feel really like you just, some, they never ask the question at the time when which you have time to answer it. Um, and yet that is, that is God at work saying like, no, let's continue to move forward. I do want to honor our time together and moving forward together. And I'm going to bring up that it is time for our final question here on two on one, uh, which is, of course, actually, Spiff, it's yours to ask, please. Sure. Well, Christine, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Um, and thank you for making Arthur watch a little bit of a scary thing. Yeah, um, you're you. the one you're the one person that could get him to do it, um, which, you know. Well, we've known each other for 15 years now, Christine. Do you realize that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I he was that. my New Year's Eve kiss one year. I, yeah, when we went karaoke, I forgot. That was the weirdest uh, alcohol was involved. <clears throat> I'm not surprised. Uh, Arthur has never been my New Year's kiss, but, you know, not there's yet. still time. Uh, sorry, Brian. Um, anyways, uh, Christine, thank you for coming on. What biblical story, narrative, theme, text, uh, anything within the biblical canon and its expansiveness are you most reminded of in Midnight Mass? So in my head, the, the person that I think exemplified it the most was uh, Sherik Hassan, not because he is the outlier as far as religion goes, as far as race goes, but so much the fact that he was willing to do what was right mm -hmm. in a very difficult situation. Um, and we see a lot of stories, specifically, I'm having a hard time limiting to just one prophet of the Old Testament, but to me, he felt prophetic. He fought for what was right, what was then, because I think we get confused that pro prophecy means super far in the future. He did what needed to be done then. And that's what I think prophets typically do. They do what needs to be done then to make the change that needs to happen. Um, and do I think that he really wanted to do that? Absolutely not. I don't think he gave it flying flip about most of the people on that island that had, you know, judged him and hurt him. But he, there was enough people there that it mattered to him. And it may have only been one. It may have just been his son. but. I think that he was incredibly powerful character. I would love to see a se second season. I know that there's not going to be one. There's no way for there to be one, but I would love to see an entire season just from his perspective and like the history of how he was on the Island, because it talks about nine 11 and the bigotry that was involved and everything like that. And um, he was just 
he was inspiring to the fact that even at this very end, he's in pain and he still goes on and prays and, and believes in his faith that people are good at the end. And I just, for what he had gone through in the last 24 hours, it's just shocking. The fact that this is the character that to me most reflects what we're called to do. So I'm with you. That's good news. I like that a lot. Well, it wasn't really shocking that he was Muslim. I don't know how to word that correctly. So please be careful if it sounds like I'm being bigotry. No, no. Okay. But I appreciate your thoughtfulness about that. Um, I'm going to suggest that Father Paul is the Apostle Paul, but not the actual Apostle Paul, but how we interpret the Apostle Paul. Um, My new question to people when they're like, I hate Paul is, have you read Paul? Um, And have you read him out of context or uh, rather in context? And Spiff, you can still hate Paul and that's fine because the answer is, right, you don't hate Paul. That's the whole point. Um, I think it started off with a really good idea and a really helpful thing. And then it kind of snowballed into, oh crap, I'm defining an entire religion based on my own poorly built improvisational skills. Um, and it, it made some vampires and sometimes things that Paul did need to be burnt down in the day on Easter morning. So, I mean, there's no proof that Paul did and create vampires. Um, anyways, but, <laughs> uh, my answer is Bev is the church. We think we are, um, that, or the church that we hope we are. We hope that we are faithful. We hope that we show up and support that pastor and ask the right questions and lean and live so much into our faith that we, you know, without question, do what is necessary to do as we understand the gospel. But I think we are in such a space with most of our church writ large that it's, um, that if we took that step back, uh, we would see that our zealot, we have become zealots in certain regards, um, rather than um, the the people that are supposed to journey. I think we've we've dug our heels in um, when we are supposed to move, and um, and that that is really like what Bev is, right? She's someone that digs her heels, and she is there for the church. And ideally, we say that's who we want to be, and that's what we want of our people and our thoughts and all of this, and yet you know, uh, we follow someone who, who never settles and who never plants a church and who is constantly on the move. And so, um, I think that she, she is a pivotal person for us as the church to say, it's who we think we want to be, but we really don't want to go there. Love it. Uh, Christine, thank you very, very, very much for being part of two on one today and for bringing well, Spiff's attention to Midnight Mass and for helping my therapist afford that summer home on the beach. As always, as you know that we're sponsored by Jeff One Row Designs, making 16 years of ordinary time extraordinary and use the code two on one, all letters, no numbers. I never remember what are letters and numbers when I do this. We have promo. 16 days left to use all letters, no spaces, two on one for 50% exactly. off your entire stole order at Jeff One Row, J-E-F-F-W-U-N-R-O-W.com. Uh, this code legit ends uh, at midnight on the 31st, friends. So uh, get them in now. Yep. And when you do that, of course, tune in next week. Christine, thank you again uh, for joining us on 2 and one I'm one of your co-hosts, the Reverend Arthur Stewart. I'm your other co-host, the Reverend Stephanie Kendall. And uh, bye, deuces. Get more 2 on one at 2 on one projectcom <laughs> <laughs>